Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. We've been doing a series on reasons to believe, and we're hopefully completing what we have done the last two sessions in part five, entitled The Claims of Christ. And we want to continue going through the four Gospels and examining rather closely the things that Jesus claimed about himself. And, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about what people claim. Uh, We can claim all kinds of wonderful things about ourselves, but what is the truth? And what we began this section saying is, Jesus can't be just a good teacher or even a great moral man, because when you look at all the things he claimed to be and things that he claimed he was going to do, either they're all true or he's a liar or a lunatic. And I love that quote that we've been repeating from Josh McDowell that Jesus is one of three things. He's a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And you can't have a little bit of both. And I think already we've gone through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and a little bit of John. If you've been following along with us, I think you're seeing that Jesus made some wild, extravagant claims about himself. Nothing short of claiming to be the one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and even the great I Am. God himself. And we saw, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, that he, on a number of occasions, boldly and very plainly declared to be the Messiah, the promised one that the Jewish people were looking for. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He said that he was greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than the temple. Um, On one occasion, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he changed the question and pointed to his own disciples, who do you say I am? And that's, of course, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And he warned them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Well, that's pretty clear there that he was saying, I am the Christ, but don't tell anyone that just yet. And repeatedly, in all four Gospels, we see Jesus predicting his death on the cross by crucifixion, and that three days later he would rise from the dead, and that he had power over death, power to raise himself back to life. And in the Gospel of Luke, when he read from Isaiah 61 in the temple, he finished reading, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone in the room knew what he was claiming, that he had just read about the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he's anointed me, to preach good news, to open the eyes of the blind, etc. He 
claim to have the power not only to heal sickness, but the power to forgive sins. And the Jewish leaders understood very clearly that that was a claim of deity. Only God can forgive sins. And of course, they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. And on and on the list goes, these amazing claims that he was going to initiate a new covenant through his blood and that he was the great I am on a number of occasions, particularly in the Gospel of John, we've already been seeing that he claimed to be I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And that was a a major claim to be making in a Jewish audience because they all revered Abraham as their father. And he made it very clear, I'm greater than Abraham. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And as we're going through the Gospel of John, we're going to make a list at the very end of just the things that he claimed in the Gospel of John. And so far, we've seen that he claimed to be the bread of life, and that anyone who believes in him would never hunger, but would have eternal life. He claimed to be the one who would give the Holy Spirit. He claimed in John 8 to be the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he said. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Now, um, I want to pick it up where we left off last time uh, in John 11. And of course, in John 10, we saw, I am the door, or I am the gate. I am the entrance into salvation. And also in John 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And in John 11, we find another one of these amazing I am statements. And in John 11, we'll pick it up at verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 25. Of course, the setting is Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb now for four days. Mary and Martha are quite upset that Jesus didn't come in time to heal their brother, and he assures them with these words, John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This goes beyond the other things that we've seen Jesus claiming about himself concerning death and resurrection. Not only does he claim that he will rise from the dead, but he claims to be resurrection. I am resurrection, and I am life. And obviously, if he is resurrection and life, he has power over all death. He has power to give life to the dead, which, of course, he gave physical life back to Lazarus right after this at his tomb, 
and he promised Mary and Martha that he has power to give us resurrection from the dead into eternal life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And probably the most famous of all of his I am statements, and I think this is probably my favorite one of all, is found in John 14. John chapter 14, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 6. And this, of course, is where Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just going to show us the way. He's not simply going to be a teacher of truth. Or, and again, this we saw in the previous one in John 11. He doesn't just give life. He is life. And so in John 14, starting at verse 1, he tells the disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a very powerful statement. And just taking this one claim alone, there's never been any other human being that made this kind of a claim and was able to back it up. But Jesus boldly declares, I am the way. I am truth and I am life. And as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He doesn't just give us a list of things and say, here, this is the truth. And he doesn't give us some formula for life. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And for those of us who are believers, this is very important to keep reminding ourselves We're not just following a set of rules or guidelines or methods or directions that are going to get us into heaven. It's a person. The way is a person. The truth is a person. Life is a person. And so all of these things are in Christ, the very person of Christ. And... To be able to claim, I am the way to God. No one can come to God except through me. You know, the people who like to say, 
all roads lead to God and all religions are the same and it really doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim calling on Allah or a Buddhist or a Hindu calling on 30,000 different gods. It does matter and it matters greatly because there's only one way to salvation. I would agree with part of that statement. All roads do lead to God. And the, the roads that I'm talking about lead to God at a great white throne judgment. And every man, woman, and child will one day stand before God. The question isn't whether your road is leading you to God. The question is, is it leading you to salvation? And Jesus said, no one can come to the life. No one can come into the truth. No one can truly come into a relationship with the Father except through Jesus Christ. This is a very bold and extravagant claim that Jesus makes about himself. And again, if this is not true, then he cannot be merely a great teacher or some sort of a martyr for a religious cause. We still have to dismiss everything he said and did if he cannot back up these claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, since he spoke these words, multiplied millions of people have found he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. When they repent and turn to him in faith, lo and behold, they find that there is a way to salvation. There is an absolute truth. You know, the world is teaching us today that truth is, well, it's not absolute. Your truth may be a little bit different than mine, and it's all relative, you know, depending on your circumstances. That's absolutely wrong. Truth is absolute, and truth is actually a person. God is the God of truth. His Son is the truth, and the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And the Word of God, the Scriptures, are called the Word of truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said. So everything about God is truth. And we want to know the truth, for the truth is what sets us free. And certainly the best place to begin is by coming to Jesus. Because he says, I am that way, I am that truth, and I am that life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, a little further down, while we're here in John 14, there are a couple of other amazing claims that Jesus makes, and we'll continue right on from the next verse, John 14, verse 7. And this is something for us to really ponder, because he claims anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I don't think you and I would dare 
make such a claim. But Jesus said, you look at me, you watch me, whatever you see me say or do, it's a reflection of Almighty God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father. So, reading from verse 7, If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, probably more than three years now? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. It's an amazing thing for a human being to say. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've been with me this long, Philip, surely you've seen a manifestation of divinity, of deity. You've seen God in my life. And I think we would all agree that if you spend more than three years with someone, and I mean literally eating with them, sleeping with them, traveling with them from place to place, you're going to see all of their flaws. You're going to see every sin, every weakness in their life. Well, they hadn't seen any sin. They hadn't seen any moral weakness in Jesus because the Bible is very clear. He knew no sin. He was without sin. And so Jesus appeals to the fact Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, you're telling me you still haven't seen the Father? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And one more claim we find here in John 14. And again, I'm, I'm not in a hurry here. There are lots and lots of good things in the Gospel of John, more than all of the other Gospels. John tells us about these amazing claims that Jesus makes about himself. And a little further down in John 14, and then also in John 15, Jesus claims that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent in his name to remind all believers of Jesus' words and to testify about him. Now, you have to think about this for a minute. Suppose this were you or me telling a group of people, um, 
God Almighty lives in me, and he's about to send the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit of God. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit is coming to do is to remind all of you about my words and to testify about me. Well, you and I wouldn't dare make such a claim, but Jesus did. And in John 14, verse 26, for instance, he says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you, whom the Father the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. That second part comes from John 15 and verse 26. So, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit in my name. He's going to remind you of all of my words, of everything I've ever said to you. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify or bear witness to me. So the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit coming is to remind us of Jesus, testify about Jesus, tell us all of the things that Jesus said. It's an amazing claim. Moving along. John chapter 15, we come to another one of these I am statements. I am the true vine. And we'll read from John 15, 1 to verse 5. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, here Jesus claims to be the very source of sustenance, just as a branch must be attached to the vine to receive the life-giving sap, water, nutrients from the main vine so that it can produce fruit. The minute it's cut off from the vine, it withers, dies, and produces absolutely no fruit. Jesus claims to be that sustaining, life-giving vine. And apart from him, 
without him, we have no life in us, and we can certainly produce no fruit. And I want to read verse 5 again, because this is, this is very real to me now. I'm not saying this to sound humble or spiritual. It's just a reality in my life that I can do nothing of any value now apart from Jesus Christ. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, we can do lots of things. We can run around and be busy and, boy, we can, you know, really spin our wheels and do all kinds of great labors and works and projects and we get so proud about all of our accomplishments. But in the end, we find out that if it was done without him, it just vanishes into thin air. It's worthless, vain, completely useless. What I believe the Bible refers to as dead works. We are, as Christians, to do good works. The difference between a good work and a dead work, a good work is fruit that is born by our abiding in Jesus Christ. A dead work is something we do in our own strength, in our own pride, in our own self-effort. And in the grand scheme of things, it really produces nothing of any value. Apart from me, you can do nothing because I am the true vine. Now, coming back to the Holy Spirit again, in John 16, Jesus makes yet another claim about the reason for the coming Holy Spirit. He claimed that the Holy Spirit was being sent by the Father to glorify Jesus, to glorify Him. And obviously, the Spirit of God is not going to try to glorify something that is not divine. The Holy Spirit is not going to glorify human flesh. So, the very fact that Jesus is claiming the purpose for the Holy Spirit coming is to glorify Him, is an indirect way of saying, I am divine. I am deity. Let's follow this. John 16, from verse 13 to 15. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Pay close attention to verse 14. He, that's the Holy Spirit, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. 
the the real ministry of the Holy Spirit is, of course, manifold. There are many things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But sadly, some Christians think the Holy Spirit comes just to enable me to speak in tongues, cast out devils, and maybe have a few gifts or prophesy or do a few miracles. That's all good and well. Excuse me. But the real purpose for the Holy Spirit being in your life and mine is to be revealing Jesus to us, giving glory to Jesus in us and through us, and making him known to us. That revelation knowledge of Jesus Christ can only come through the abiding Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in us. So, this isn't something that just happened 40 years ago when you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Every day, every hour, every moment, the Holy Spirit is living inside us, wanting to show us more about Jesus, the riches of Christ, to open up our inner man to understand the greatness of Christ, and so to bring glory to Jesus. In John chapter 17, I'm almost tempted to read the whole chapter because it's just so chock full of amazing claims that Jesus makes about himself, this time not to the Jews or to his disciples, but in prayer to his Father. And you might be able to fool some people some of the time, but you certainly can't pull the wool over God's eyes. And no one would dare make these kind of claims in the presence of Almighty God. But that's exactly what John 17 is. It's Jesus praying to his Father. And he makes some amazing statements in this prayer that's recorded for us. And we're going to read quite a bit of this chapter. Not the whole thing, but I would encourage you to read all of John 17 at one sitting and just try to imagine this being a prayer that someone is praying before Almighty God. And I think you'll realize no one but Jesus could pray a prayer like this. John 17 starting at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now just pause there for a minute. Let verse 2 sink in. He's telling the Father, you granted him authority over all people. Authority over all people. So that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. 
So out of all people, there's a group that Jesus says the Father gave to Jesus. And all those that the Father gave to him, he can give eternal life. Verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, you know, when I was a little kid growing up, going to the Episcopal Church, and, you know, I I heard this all the time, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I thought Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. You know, like John Doe or Wayne Pratt, I thought Jesus was his first name, Christ was his last name. Well, that's not the way it works. As far as we know, he has no last name. He's Jesus. Christ means anointed one, or it's really synonymous with Messiah. So the fact that Jesus uses both of these titles to refer to himself when he's praying to God is a powerful thing. I mean, you and I wouldn't dare go before God and say, hey God, how you doing? I'm Wayne the Messiah. No. But he's praying to God, and he's making a declaration about eternal life. By the way, eternal life is not just a long, long time. It's a kind of life. It's a quality of life. And this is the only definition I can find in the Scriptures for what eternal life truly is. It's not just living forever and ever. People in hell are going to live forever and ever. But this is something way beyond that. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus the Messiah, knowing Jesus Christ. How important it is for us to continually hunger and thirst and seek after a deeper revelation, a deeper relationship with God the Father, with God the Son, and with God the Holy Spirit, because that's what eternal life is truly all about. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and know Jesus the Messiah, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, and listen to this, with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory I had with you before the world began. So, here he's again claiming that before anything existed, he was together with the Father in eternity. The glory I had with you before the world began. And jump down to verse 8. For I gave them the words you gave me, 
and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So, this is something repeated often in the Gospel of John. I came down from heaven, the Father sent me from heaven to earth, and now I'm going back to heaven, I'm going back to the Father. No other human being can make such claims. Coming down from heaven, having been dwelling in eternity with the Father before creation, sharing in his glory. These are claims that no human can ever make. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. Now we got to stop for a minute there. He claims that he and the Father are one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Let me read that again. We are one. Now, you can't be one if you're something different. This is, a, again, a clear claim to his deity. I am God, my Father is God, we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, <clears throat> may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Verse 24, I shared a little bit on Sunday about the Father's love for Jesus. And we were looking in Genesis at the first mention of some important terms or concepts. And the first time that love is mentioned in the Bible, it's not the love of a man for a woman. It's not even the love of a mother for her child. It's the love of a father for his son. And in Genesis 22, it's referring to Abraham's love for his one and only son, Isaac, that God told him to offer up as a sacrifice. And surely, this is the first and the most important love before there was any other kind of love, as we read here in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I don't even claim to have any understanding about this. 
how before time, before creation, in eternity past, there was this relationship between the Father and the Son. And all we're told about it is it was a love relationship. The Father loved the Son before the creation of the world, and the Son loved the Father. And that kind of oneness between the Father and the Son is what Jesus is praying now can somehow be communicated to you and to me and to all those that believe in him. Verse 25, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, that just blows my mind every time I read it. Jesus is praying to the Father. I I have to keep reminding you that what we're reading here is not a sermon, it's a prayer. And I don't know about you, but I happen to believe that every prayer Jesus prayed is going to be answered. And he makes some amazing prayers here for you and for me. And I want to say amen to every one of these. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That eternal love that the Father has for his Son, Jesus says, I want it to be in you. And that oneness that he has with the Father He's praying that you and I can come into that oneness with the Father, with the Son, and with one another. These are amazing prayers. And just in this prayer, if you go back over it, I think you'll see clearly, Jesus repeatedly claims to be Messiah. He claims to be God. He has all authority. He is eternal He was with the Father before creation, loved by the Father before creation. He knows the Father. All these things are are clearly brought out in this prayer. Now, let's try to finish this up. We have a little bit more to do, but I want to complete it in this session. Moving into the next chapter of John, Jesus still isn't finished. He's got yet more to declare about himself. In John 18, we read the story of how when Judas betrayed him and he brought the officers and the soldiers to arrest him, something very interesting happens. And we pick it up in John 18 reading from verse 3 to 6. 
And I'm going to read from the New King James here. I just like a little bit better the way it sounds. John 18, from 3 to 6. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Okay? They're coming to arrest Jesus to crucify him. So they there's quite a large group of soldiers and officers with weapons. Verse 4. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, is literally what he said. Now, depending on your translation, it may say, I am he, or the New King James has the word he in brackets, meaning it's not really in the original language. Basically, all he says is, I am. Okay? Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Okay? But listen carefully to verse 6. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Oh my God. I love that. All he said is, I am. And all these mighty soldiers with their torches and their swords and their lanterns and all of their great power and authority, they all get knocked off their feet. Why? Because he is the great I am. And I don't know exactly what happened here, but there was some manifestation of the power of God when he spoke those two little words, I am. Now, a little later on, after his arrest, he's brought before Pilate. And Pilate was very curious to find out just who is this Jesus. He, he's making all these wild claims, including the one that he is a king. So Pilate, of course, wants to find out more about this. And in John 18, starting with verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Pretty simple question. Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom, remember the question was, Are you the king? 
His answer is, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born, and for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So, even before Pilate, Jesus boldly answers the question, Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, you are right in saying, I am a king. Furthermore, my kingdom is not of this world. It is from another place. Now, in the next chapter, the conversation continues. John 19 now, still talking with Pilate, and verse 10. Pilate asks him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Wow. That's powerful. Basically, Pilate is sort of offering him a way out. If you'll just talk to me, I can get you off the hook here. I have that kind of power. I have power to free you, and I have power to crucify you. Jesus said, you have no power at all except what my Father gave you from above. You and I need to really understand this. Sometimes we're so worried, we're so afraid of what people can do to us, what people are saying about us. We need to get this revelation that nobody has any power to do anything to us unless it's granted to them by our Father. That, of course, is if we belong to the Father. If we have given our life to God, if we are surrendered totally to Him and to His will, there are no accidents. People can't just randomly harm us and do things to us. They have to be given the power to do that by our Father. And of course, the cross was part of the Father's will for Jesus. So God granted that power and authority to Pilate to carry out Christ's crucifixion on the cross because it was predetermined, it was predestined by the plan of God. Yes, I'm a king, and no, you don't have any power unless my Father gave it to you. Let me summarize now 
Uh, I made a list of about eight of these I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. We saw in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the door to salvation, and also I am the good shepherd. In John 11, I am resurrection, and I am life. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. And finally, we just read John 18, I am a king. If you add all this up, and I hate to keep repeating it, but I I need to bring you back to this thought, because this is a very common fallacy in our culture today, and you may have already had friends or people tell you this. Well, Jesus gave a lot of good teachings. Um, He was a great prophet. He did a lot of good things, and he may have even been a martyr for what he believed in. So for that, we admire him, but we're not going to worship him as God, and we're certainly not going to uh, put our whole faith and trust in him to be our Savior and our life. But listen to the absurdity of that statement. How can we trust a man for anything if you look at all these claims he made about himself and you're going to say they're not true? If he made all of these claims and they cannot be substantiated, then, as we said at the start, he's either a liar, he's a false prophet, a false Christ, or he's a lunatic. He's completely out of his mind, deluded, making these crazy statements that I am the great I am, I'm greater than Abraham, Jonah, Solomon, I am the only way to be saved, I am the one that can raise you from the dead, and on and on and on they go. If even one of these claims can be proven false, then we must reject Jesus as either a liar or a lunatic. If everything he claimed is true, and we believe it is, if all of these claims, and you need to go back and look at the the notes. Um, By the way, I'll go ahead and put the plug in here. If you want the outline for any of these studies, you can find them at our church website, new-life-ministries.org, and just uh, click on the button there for the sermons, and you'll find both the audio uh, recordings and also the written notes, the outlines for each one of these studies. If you look through this part of the study, and there are about 14 pages to it, 
And you go through every one of these claims and realize they all have to be true. Otherwise, Jesus can't be who he claims to be. So he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And if they're all true, then he is indeed the great I am. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we believe that through his life, through his miracles, through his death, burial, and resurrection, an abundant testimony that we've talked about in previous studies, all recorded for us in the New Testament, the, the authentic record, historical record of all that Jesus said and did and taught. It's all true. It's all substantiated by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. Then we're really left with only one choice. Jesus is Lord. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to salvation and the only way to the Father. When you look at all of these claims, and I would strongly recommend that you go back and look over all of the notes or even listen to the recordings if, if you wish. When you look at all of these claims, there's nothing ambiguous about these claims. Jesus was very plain very clear, and the Jews of his day understood very clearly what he was saying. That's why repeatedly they tried to stone him, and finally they did crucify him for blasphemy. Blasphemy, of course, is claiming to be God when you're not. Well, he wasn't a blasphemer. He was claiming to be God, and he is. He does have power to heal the sick, to raise the dead, he does have power to forgive sins. So, nothing ambiguous about his claims. The Jews of his day clearly understood that he was claiming to be Messiah, the Anointed One, God Almighty, the Great I Am. His birth, his life, his miracles, ultimately his death and resurrection confirmed every one of his claims. Indeed, he's greater than Abraham, Moses, Jonah, Solomon, greater than any temple that's been built. Truly, Jesus is the great I am. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you, we magnify you, we glorify you tonight. We thank you for the word of God. As the psalmist David said, Oh, how I love your law. God, we love the word of God. Oh, it's like sweet honey. We just love to read and delve into the depths of your truth because it speaks to us of your love, your power, and your great plan of redemption and salvation for mankind. Father, we thank you for your Son, whom you loved from before the creation. You have always loved him, and he has always loved you. 
because from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Lord, we are anxiously awaiting the soon appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the great I Am. He is the eternally existent one who together with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit brought everything into being. Lord Jesus, we welcome you into our hearts and lives. We acknowledge that you are the only way to the Father. You are the only way to truth, to life, and to salvation. And God, we want to continually live in Jesus and abide in him because he is the life-giving vine. He is the source of all goodness, of all power, of all fruitfulness. Lord, I pray your blessing now on each and every one listening to this Bible study, those who may listen later through the internet or through recordings or whatever. God, bless them with faith and with a clear revelation of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We give you praise and honor and glory now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Next time, we're going to continue with another exciting part of this study. We're going to look at fulfilled prophecy, how the, the Bible often made and makes predictions about the future, and hundreds of those predictions have already been fulfilled to a T. And the ones that yet to be fulfilled, we have absolute confidence based on all of the past predictions that they will come to pass just as God has spoken. So next time, we're going to continue with this series, Reasons to Believe, and we'll see in part six the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. Okay? God bless you all.